When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Does the future of crypto staking in the U.S. hang in the balance? As Kraken settles with the SEC, we're going to dive in and explain why it matters. Welcome back to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. We also have David Nage from ARCA. Welcome to the show, David. Good to be with you, Ash. We'll speak in just a moment, but first, let's take a look at today's latest price analysis. The total crypto market cap is down 5% on coin market cap. Bitcoin is down 4% on a 24-hour basis. It's currently trading around 21,700. It has not been a good week for Bitcoin, as you can see. Meanwhile, Ether has suffered an even bigger fall in percentage terms. It's down some 6% on a 24-hour basis. The current price of Ether is $1,350. That's about 100 bucks lower from the same time yesterday. And now let's take a look at our top story, Kraken. The U.S.-based crypto exchange and one of the world's largest has settled with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. The SEC says Kraken failed to register its staking as a service program. As part of the settlement, Kraken will cease the staking program in the U.S. It's also going to pay a $30 million fine. Let me walk you through some of the details here. Even among the SEC itself, there is no universal agreement. SEC commissioner and longtime crypto advocate Hester Peirce wrote a dissenting opinion. Here are a couple of particularly notable points. Quote, the more fundamental question is whether SEC registration would have been possible. In the current crypto environment, crypto-related offerings are not making it through the SEC's registration pipeline. Using enforcement actions to tell people what the law is in an emerging industry is not an efficient or fair way of regulating. Moreover, staking services are not uniform. So one-off enforcement actions and cookie-cutter analysis does not cut it. She was thanked by Kraken co-founder Jesse Powell, who said, quote, some guidance would be appreciated. This is wrong, but I won't tell you how to do it right. This is in, in uh, subquotes as a supposition. Uh, want to find out if X works? Try it and see what happens. Approach does not help the industry nor consumers. We weren't anti-regulation, but we need a clear path to operate. Uh, there's also an action by another regulator making the rounds in the crypto world this morning. Coindesk has an exclusive report that says Paxos, the issuer of stablecoins such as Binance's BUSD, is under investigation by the New York Department of Financial Services. Coindesk says the premise of the investigation is unclear. Paxos is operating on a conditional banking charter. There were rumors earlier this week that the federal banking regulator asked Paxos 
to withdraw its application for a full banking charter. Paxos has denied that. Obviously, uh, that is uh, very much a, a breaking story uh, being covered right now by Coindesk. Lots more to come there. You know, the main story of the day, I guess they're both big stories, but really the the question of what's happening over at Kraken is a significant one. It has broader implications. I was talking about this on the show a little bit yesterday, just to give a little bit of context, a little bit of background. Obviously, we've seen a significant change in the ecosystem of Ethereum post-merge. We've moved from proof of work to proof of stake. And now there are all these open questions about how this is going to work from a regulatory perspective. I talked about this yesterday from two principal perspectives. First, the question about securities. Uh, and securities offerings in the view of the SEC, unregistered securities offerings. Uh, and also, additionally, uh, the idea of OFAC. This is the Office of Foreign Asset Controls. Uh, this is at Treasury, not at SEC. But there are two significant open questions here uh, in terms of the way federal government regulation and legislation is going to be interpreted in light uh, or around the context of a new proof-of-stake system in Ethereum and other protocols. Obviously, some very strong uh, words here from the SEC in this settlement. I should also point out that SEC Chair Gary Gensler has posted a video on YouTube explaining his views of staking. Uh, I think it's fair to say whether we agree or disagree, as I imagine most of our viewers do with Mr. Gensler, uh, that he does actually have a sense of how this technology works. After all, he did teach a course in blockchain at MIT. Uh, so there is some uh, value, I think, uh, for our viewers to go and check out that video just to get a sense of, of what the SEC chair thinks about this. Uh, with all that said, I'd like to bring in our next guest. David Nage is Portfolio Manager at Arca, a digital assets management company. Welcome back to the Crypto Daily Briefing, David. It's great to be with you, Ash. David, before we jump in and start talking about some of these stories, some of our news flow and what you do, tell us a little bit about Arca. Argo was established almost five years ago to be an institutional asset manager uh, focused on having multiple strategies at the firm to really facilitate the education and the ability for uh, institutional investors to invest in this asset class in a way that they are normally used to. And so over the last few years, we have developed several different funds, meeting different criteria for those investors, uh, and we're very proud of the work we've done so far in doing so. And tell us a little bit about your role, what you do, what your day-to-day -day looks like. My day-to-day -day role is running our early stage venture fund. Uh, we launched that about a year and a half ago. And currently what we're looking at right now, and one of the things I would love to talk to you about, because I feel that as an industry, we've been looking at the next shoe to drop versus where the next wave comes from. We are doing things on the earliest side of, of innovation. We are looking at founders who are building our future today. And much of that future is around the digital asset and Web3 infrastructure that we're starting to see evolve. Much of that is around either digital assets or NFTs. Um, and we're starting to really look to those founders to find ways to incorporate all of this technology into our day-to-day -day lives. So every day we are looking for founders who are building those companies, looking at the technology and implementing it in ways that we think will be beneficial for society. David, let me ask you this. You mentioned this distinction between uh, the next shoe versus uh, the next wave, this idea of downside versus upside, the idea uh, of where the opportunities are versus what the challenges are in the space. And obviously, it seems at least that both are considerable. How do you balance those two out? How do you think about it in terms of a time horizon perspective, uh, in terms of how you invest? Because obviously, uh, we've seen some material downside uh, pressure in terms of pricing in the space. How do you think about that? How does it impact your broader thesis? 
It definitely does. Uh, we are long duration uh, in the in the fund itself and the way that we Ex look. Explain what that means for people who may long not. Long duration typically means instead of looking at the next one month or the next six months or the next one year, we're looking three, five, ten years down the road, um, even beyond that. Um, I, I would be remiss to say, you know, I look at a lot of the comparisons to the early internet. If I felt that uh, at the end of the day that Yahoo was the search engine of choice and that was it and there was no other innovation to happen there, uh, we would have missed Amazon, we would have missed Google, we would have missed you know, PayPal and Netflix. Uh, and so we typically try to look where the innovation is today and where the innovation will start to be implemented in the next few years, the next decade. Um, and so, yes, we are long duration here. But... As you alluded to, yes, the, the issues with the current environment right now have made it very interesting for us as investors. Uh, you know, what does the regulatory landscape look like? And you know, in terms of that, um, we think that sensible regulation is meaningful. Again, looking back into the early 90s and late 90s with the internet, we were talking about, the, about this before, encryption was under duress. Uh, encryption was uh, not really uh, liked with the FBI and the NSA, it was frowned upon. But encryption, as Mark Andreessen and Netscape was starting to implement it, it created a more secure environment for the everyday consumer to be able to do things like e-commerce purchases, to be able to interact in social forms. And so that regulation actually helped that industry grow in Burgeon. And so we think that sensible regulation here is really important for what's happening within digital assets today. However, we're looking to the innovation to see how it can be implemented in the future. And a few ways that we think is going to happen uh, very briefly, the NFT, for those that obviously are familiar with it, has gotten a lot of popularity over the last few years as a collectible, a board ape and whatever you may call other ones out there. Um, that was one instance of it. And I, again, equated to the early days of the internet where you had chat rooms on AOL. People thought that was it. Uh, but of course, it, it became much bigger than that and became mainstay with businesses. The NFT, very similarly, is also in that phase where it had its first instance. Um, and where we believe it to be going right now is, and we're starting to see this with some of the evidence, the, the relationship between Nike and Artifact, a company that they acquired at the end of 2021, is starting to uh, unleash this new idea of what they're calling physical goods. Now, it's not the greatest terminology in the world, but a physical good is the marriage of a digital asset, a sneaker, a hoodie, a shirt, with a physical one that you can wear in your day-to-day -day life. This is very interesting for the consumer purposes because we haven't seen that before. You've had something on the internet and you can't necessarily wear it in real life. That's mm. one instance of it. Another instance, and we think it's really important, and one of the things that we look for specifically for the fund is this idea of token gating. Token gating is, is effectively the use of a digital asset or an NFT to be able to access live events that are exclusive, content, um, other different things that are community-based. Um, and very similar, if anyone who's listening to this right now has ever uh, gone on a buy-side you know, shop and is looking for sell-side research, you typically have to have a relationship with that sell-side bank to be able to access that research. Very similarly, we think possibly that the NFT and token gating could be something similar to that, where you have to prove that you are a part of that community or you have some sort of a relationship to the, to the activity they're trying to access. 
And so David, there I, are things I'd love to sure. walk through each one of those points one at a time, but I want to get sure. back to your broader metaphor here uh, for sure. thinking about the digital asset spaces uh, analogous in some ways to where we were uh, in the revolution that happened with Web 1.0. I very much uh, use that metaphor myself, and it's something that I think about in terms of uh, the way that... Uh, you know, the technology unfolded. You know, it's interesting that the metaphor here, this sort of inexorable march forward of technology uh, with people who are in the tech space on the bleeding edge and also the unforeseeability of some of the things that came. For example, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, the, the rise of uh, some of uh, those other companies, uh, Google, for example, that was not mm -hmm. a search engine, uh, when Yahoo and AltaVista and Webcrawler and all of this technology that looks very antiquated today uh, were the de facto standards in the industry. I mean, I think about something uh, like Uber, which would just be impossible to fathom without right. uh, you know some of the devices and the infrastructure that got built up, the layers of abstraction that got created on the internet to enable that to happen, whether it's GPS, payment processing, uh, obviously the smartphone, all of these revolutions that had to take place before we get there, it becomes very hard to foresee this very bright future that I think that most of us who are involved in the space see for Web3. Let me throw out some statistics here uh, to talk about the uh, the flip side of the equation and, and how you think about this. Amazon was underwater uh, for 94 months, almost uh, eight uh, almost eight full years uh, from its 1999 peak. I know it. I was one of the young guys on Wall Street uh, at that point, and I remember you know folks who were uh, who seemed like old guys who were probably younger than I am today tapping me on the shoulder and saying, "Hey, kid, that internet thing was a great idea, but what are you going to do with the rest of your life now?" Uh, obviously, we know in retrospect it came back, but you do see these, you know, these challenges. Uh, staking seems to me as though it's pretty core uh, to the part, uh, to the essence of everything that's going to be happening uh, in the, for example, in the uh, Ethereum ecosystem. To name just one, obviously not the only one that uses proof of stake. Uh, many of the newer protocols, in fact, the vast majority of them, are currently using some form of proof of stake. Uh, and uh, Bitcoin and Litecoin and some of the other uh, sort of store of value protocols being the outliers here. When you see this this core challenge uh, to what's happening uh, there, and by the way, we should point out, and maybe this is a distinction you can touch on, uh, mm -hmm. which is the distinction between uh, what we're talking about here uh, is this uh, proof of stake or staking as a service is the term that uh, Gary Gensler, I believe, uses in his video versus staking uh, per se, where you uh, where you actually uh, control your own coins. In fact, uh, Mr. Gensler uses the phrase uh, in his video. He says, "Not your not your keys, not your crypto." Right. Uh, so talk a little bit about that distinction around staking, how it plays into the ecosystem, uh, and how you see this moving forward in light of what we've seen. I think, and obviously, regardless of the current actions here, because I have no uh, insight into that, what's happening right. there right now, but what we have seen over the last year, and I've, I've spoken to uh, folks about this before, is in my opinion, is that we ran away from the actual technology. Um, Whereas you know, we saw an abundance of interest from institutional investors, from large tier one banks, we offered them the ability to enter into the world of digital assets vis-a-vis -vis centralized exchanges and other uh, outfits and platforms that they're more accustomed to. Again, this was because there was an abundance of interest. We wanted to gain more market share. Uh, but at the end of the day, it wasn't the actual innovation, in my opinion. The actual innovation, as you alluded to, Ash, is where you actually own or you have custody of your assets vis-a-vis uh, -vis a treasure, a ledger, a different type of wallet, uh, and you're able to do things uh, in a very specific, different way than we ever had before. Um, I, what happened, in my opinion, is that the actual user experience uh, of owning a ledger, a treasure, having assets on a effectively a USB stick for all intents and purposes, 
was not very comfortable and was fairly alien to many of the new quote unquote institutional investors that were looking into the world of digital assets. And so again, though, this is very similar to an, another analogy, if you will, because we're, we're doing a lot of analogies here right now, 2FA. Everyone now has understood that the importance of 2FA basically having multiple different- By the way, for those who don't know, this is two-factor authentication, sometimes right. called MFA, multi-factor authentication. Right. Um, 2FA is something that if you ever use a website now these days, if you go to Twitter, you go to Amazon, any website that you're interacting with, especially your bank, typically would ask you to not only provide a, a phone number for you to verify you are who you are, but also an email address or possibly somebody else, your spouse, whatever it may be. And this is now part of our day-to-day -day life is that we have this other added piece where we have to ensure you know, we have the control of, of our assets. Again, a, a wallet uh, in this innovation here is giving you control of your assets, but it's in a different way. It's, it's a bit alien, alien to many people out there. Right. So I think what's happened as an industry is that, yes, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, the idea of, of staking uh, is something that is within the universe of digital assets. Um, you have the idea of, of proof of work, which has been operational since the days of Bitcoin. And so to get to that phase, you know, as I have said this before, we need to have sensible regulation in, in this country. We need to have the regulators meet with those that are on the precipice of the technology, the, the, invent, the investors, the founders, those that are in day-to-day -day life. And they need to really just have a, a one-week symposium where they hash it out. They don't talk about anything else. And they really figure out sensible regulation that gets us to the point of the future. Again, going back to the, the 90s and, you know, kind of conversation we had about encryption, if we didn't have sensible regulation with encryption and they closed it down, would we have that robust and e-commerce, you know, kind of economy that we have today? I don't know. I don't know if right. people would feel comfortable putting their credit cards down. Um, and so I think if we're able to get to that point, you know, the innovations with staking, the innovations with custody, things that we have here that actually provide the transparency and the mutability that is so important in relation to what happened, as you alluded to, in the days of Lehman and Bear in 2008. If we can provide the technology and the tools and the regulation to marry that all together to provide a fully transparent environment, you know, the things that we've seen in the past could potentially be mitigated. You know, it's interesting. As we as we explore these topics, talk about these ideas, I'm curious about where you have the most optimism, where you have the most enthusiasm, what you see as being some of the bleeding edge technologies here uh, that you think have the broadest applicability uh, and functionality that could really be the next encryption. You mentioned uh, the terribly named fidgetal good, uh, which really sounds interesting to me. Walk us through what exactly that is other than a terrible name. By the way, I remember uh, in the early days of the smartphone market, they were calling them things like PDCs, personal yes. digital communicator, all of these like insane TLAs, three-letter acronyms. Uh, and what we settled on was phone, just nice old-fashioned Anglo-Saxon word. Uh, so I'm curious, other than the silly, silly name, uh, what you think about these digital goods and, and how you see that having a real use case that could change uh, you know, the, the paradigm? As someone who we have actively looked at gaming as a as a fund and someone who has spent a lot of time in the gaming universe as well, too, I know the stats. And for those that don't know the stats, there are 3 billion gamers around the world. And obviously, there's about 8 billion people around the world. So it's a pretty big population. Gamers yeah. are becoming more ingrained in our economy. They're becoming 
you know, older and they're becoming more economically savvy. Uh, there is data out there, uh, I believe if you Google this, that the amount of hours that has been played on Fortnite was roughly 10 billion, if not more, uh, hours uh, around since 2017 when the game came out. Hundreds and thousands and millions of hours, if not billions of hours, actually maybe billions, um, have been played in these games and these ecosystems. And so there's this notion that in the future, this cohort of, of people, uh, gamers that are becoming older, that are becoming teenagers, that are becoming part of the, of the societies and the economies around the world, this is what they're accustomed to. And so, you know, you're starting to see that with the, the kind of demographics that are changing too with the gamers out there. Hey everyone, we're gonna take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And right. so the physical By the way, this is such an important point for people uh, who may be a little bit older, maybe over 35. These numbers that we see uh, out there in terms of the gross global revenue generated by gaming are just massive. It's 200 to 300 billion dollars right. uh, between mobile platforms, uh, gaming consoles and PCs. It's just an enormous, enormous business. In fact, I believe there are some statistics out there that suggest that gaming generates more money uh, than the music, film, and television industry combined. It is massive. Yep. Massive revenue and massive hours and eyeballs on these universes, these games. And so the idea of the physical good, and again, uh, hopefully there are some savvy marketing people around the world that can change that to something better. Uh, but the idea of the physical good is, again, you have a representation of the, the sneaker, the, the hoodie, the shirt, something that you wear on a day-to-day -day basis. And then you have the actual physical good on the other side here that has typically an NFC chip. This is a specialized chip that could effectively read um, and then combine it to the digital asset. This is, again, and I've seen this firsthand between, you know, having kids of my own that play video games. This is what they do. They go to these games, they go and they buy skins, they go and buy sneakers, they go and buy different things in these games. And this is what they call a flex. It's a specific word that many of them use. A flex is something that they can show off, they can show to their friends. Uh, and it's a social uh, aspect of the gaming side. And so the physical good has been attracting a lot of attention from big brands. Uh, as I said, Nike uh, has been one of the forefronts of that. Uh, others out there that have T been looking at for people who may not know a little bit about what Nike has done, because it is interesting. Sure. So there's a, a company called Artifact, which they acquired in uh, the end of 2021. Um, and just as a reference point, again, you know, there's real business here. The relationship between Nike and Artifact has already generated about $185 million of revenue for Nike in just the first year of operation. And this is, you know, obviously significant amount of revenue for anybody out there. Right. Uh, and what they've been able to do is, again, they have their NFTs of the sneakers. Um, and what they started to do, again, is this idea of the marriage of the physical and the, and the digital, where they will have a, a physical representation of that sneaker. And it's obviously a Nike sneaker. 
Um, and so they are able to sell these NFTs and then those NFT holders will actually be able to get exclusive access to the sneakers that they're creating uh, that are the same likeness of the NFT. And so do, it's a do, different do way of as something that's sort of very much, I suspect the answer to this is yes, as something that's sort of very much in its infancy right now, we're looking yes. at version 0.1 or maybe 0.0.1. Uh, yep. What do you think might be coming down the pike in terms of these digital goods uh, in the next one, three, five years where we could actually see expanded functionality? I mean, I get the sense from what I read about it that, that what we see in place today is kind of the, the pre-alpha version of what's coming uh, with mm -hmm. more te technology, obviously, and more functionality to enable users to actually do things in the real world with tie-ins uh, to the virtual world. Sure, you know, one of the things that uh, became very exciting, uh, however, again, very infant and very early was the idea of this idea of, of moving. Uh, you either exercise, you're either moving around and it marries to uh, that physical digital asset. Uh, so you may be wearing a pair of Adidas that has an NFC chip that's also tracking your steps uh, your exercise routine, uh, and it also then represents into the, the digital asset. The digital asset, if it's a gaming asset, may have higher uh, powers, may more, have more different uh, attributes, but there's a combination there. What's also really interesting, and I think this is something that we've talked about as an industry, but I still think there's a lot of relevance here, is that while you're also engaging this game with this physical sneaker uh, and you're tracking your steps and you're tracking your, your workouts, I continue to think that the insurance industry would want to be able to tap into this. If mm. you are insuring a, a population, you're seeing that they are highly active, they're exercising, you know that their risks for cardiac disease, for diabetes, for other uh, illnesses becomes lower. Um, and so this is something that I think would be relationally important to them. And right. so we definitely think that still is in the future that hasn't been cracked yet, uh, but we definitely think that that is definitely part of the future. And also another thing that I think is going to happen is that in the old days, you know, we used to go to brick and mortar shops. We used to find, you know, we used to go shopping in stores and storefronts. And then that changed over the last 20 plus years. I think what's going to happen now is that these games, uh, especially these games, you'll go to a Nike store in one of these games and you'll find a pair of sneakers, you know, a pair of Jordan 4s, for instance, that are very popular these days with the younger generations. Uh, and you'll get them in the game. And then two weeks later or one week later, you're going to have them at your doorstep from FedEx. Um, and right. so your shopping is going to change from where we were from brick and mortar to online to now having this interaction where you're actually using this form of, of the apparatus in a day-to-day -day game, but you're also going to be having it. And so I think the way and that, that, and that actually shop is going to change. And that actually touches on your idea of token gating, of access control, of the ability uh, to manage identity. Uh, by the way, two two quick points here. Uh, the first is obviously there's some downsides that need to be managed on this, uh, things like security uh, and anonymity, uh, those types of issues uh, for individuals to feel that their data is safe, that they are not going to uh, be doxxed. Uh, all of these challenges, I imagine, are things that people are thinking about. But also, you know, you see all of these divergent strands, and it's it's not hard to get a sense uh, that they are going to come together, although the exact way all the pieces fit is difficult. For example, you can think about, uh, you know, what is the mashup of uh, of a Fitbit and uh, Fortnite and, uh, you know, your Peloton and GPS uh, and Uber start to look like. You can start to think about how that how that might evolve in the future. But of course, productizing it is a challenge. 
uh, right. and also figuring out a, a way to make those products profitable is a challenge, which is what uh, you do when you think about these companies uh, that you want to invest in. Talk a little bit about that process when you're looking at a time horizon that's so far out into the future. Uh, you know, you mentioned thinking about things sometimes five and 10 years in the future. How do you think about those investments? Uh, is it on the basis of the strength of the team? Is it the idea? How do you weigh those types of considerations as you invest real capital? Definitely, you start with the team and the founders. Uh, we go through um, a lighter version of a psychological review in terms of their apathy, in terms of their ability to recruit, in terms of what they've done before. Uh, this is a difficult market, and so it's not for the lighthearted. And so we, we definitely spend more time with our founders these days to really understand what's really driving them. Why are they here? Are they here for the quick buck? Uh, are they here because it was exciting and because uh, they're you know potentially YOLOing into this space? No, uh, that would not fit for us. Someone who is here to be, you know, building for the future is someone that we're looking for, but someone also that can bring people around the table, talented engineers and developers, and really build something that's going to be significant over the, over the future. So yes, founders is definitely one of the cornerstones there uh, of our review. Uh, and then we typically look to see what the current market looks like in terms of activity. Have there been deals that are, are similar in size and scope and also in industry? Uh, what can we look for past precedent in terms of uh, their past uh, step-ups and valuations? Um, what are the financialization side of things? And then that boils down between the psychological and the financialization side of thing into a scoring mechanism that we've developed over the last year and a half or so. Um, and that kind of guides us into how we would operate uh, in terms of an investment. Now, after an investment is made, and that typically takes anywhere upward between three to six plus weeks through in, uh, in, uh, investment committees and through various more diligence requests and DDs, um, we definitely uh, set up a situation then where we're talking to our founders pretty much on a monthly basis. You know, whether it's for 10 minutes or 30 minutes, we are talking to all of our founders every month to really see how they're doing. Um, it could be KPI checkups uh, in terms of their metrics. Are they selling? Are they getting more um, you know, business partnerships? But we're checking in with them. And what we've done now in regards to this market in terms of the climate that we've been, we actually just had our first workshop in January where we're teaching our founders because many of them didn't come from more of a business development operations. We're really teaching them how to better refine their pipelines. Uh, whether they're using uh, applications. Sure about the like product products, pipeline. Uh, now. Right, exactly. Product pipelines, but also business relationships and, you know, potential customer pipelines. Um, and so, you know, how do you actually look at probabilities of closure uh, at, a, at a more refined pace? How do you actually go through an initiation of a new customer potentially to a paying customer? How do you go from a demo to getting them to sign that, that agreement for the next year or two? Um, these are all things that a lot of the founders, you know, have much more experience with the, the building side, the code side, the engineering side, the developer side. But what we've seen is that to really build sustainable businesses in, in, in digital assets and Web3, they need to really hone in on that business development side. And that's something that we're really focused on this year and going forward. David, it's, it's just invaluable to have you here explaining this, walking us through the process, what it looks like from the investor side, uh, because 
there's obviously this isn't uh, these are obviously sort of definitionally private market investments, uh, and there's so little transparency around this in the space, and also a significant proportion, obviously, of value creation in the last 10, 20 years has been shifting away from publicly traded. Uh, markets toward these private markets. So it's fascinating to have you actually unpack this, walk us through what that process looks like, talk about the framework that you guys apply. Absolutely invaluable. I appreciate that. It, it's we try have, we have tried from the very beginning of, of of the fund and also in the ethos of Arca, where we try to do you know the utmost that we can for those that we're working with, whether it's obviously our investors, but obviously then also the founders that we're investing in, you know especially from the venture perspective, capital has been abundant over the last few years. We touched on this you know, before, but in 2021, there was roughly $33 billion raised entirely for early stage and venture and digital assets. Last year, uh, there was roughly about $31 billion. The majority of that, however, was in the first two quarters of the year. So there's been an abundance of capital, but where that real specialization comes into is how do you actually help these founders build the future? Uh, they right. have great ideas, they can manifest, they can build code, and they can build tools and applications and platforms. Um, and there are, there's tons of energy and excitement there. But how do you actually turn that energy, that excitement, that platform into something that everyone wants and loves and uses on a day-to-day -day basis? And so that transition is something that we think we're really honing in on and trying to work with our founders for. Because again, it's early stage. Uh, there's a lot of, obviously, headwinds behind them right now with some of the events that have happened, especially in the last six months. And so how do you actually work through that and, and really tell a story to those you know, potential new customers, those clients, those business relationship partners? How do you actually tell that story in a meaningful way to create uh, long stem value? Shifting here from kind of this macro framework to something a little bit more personal, maybe a little bit softer, I'm sure there are young men and women watching this conversation right now uh, who are listening to you talk, who are feeling excited about the technology, excited about the future, who are curious what your advice to people in this space is who are passionate, who have an idea that they want to work on, who just don't know how to begin to get started. Because as you say, uh, maybe their background is more on the engineering side, less on the product side, less on the biz dev side. What's your advice to them? I would say that you know one of the things that we see is that there's always an emphasis to create a, a pitch deck. Um, that's you know it's great to have as a pitch deck. It's obviously necessary as part of a diligence process. We always have to have a, a pitch deck and you know some sort of financial models. Uh, but for the earliest stage, for people who have an idea, start writing it down. You know, get on your you know use a pen and paper, especially use a pen and paper uh, to actually start writing it down. Um, I have a, a journal that I use now every single day where I write things down, I write ideas down, I write what the future may look like, and just write it down so you have a journal. Um, right. And so that would be the first thing right away. Once you write that down, then start, you know, kind of computing it to something in terms of a memo. You know, get on your computer and start writing out what you think this looks like. What do you think you need um, in terms of help? Um, that help is not just financial capital, but that help is also engineering talent. Can you do this by yourself or do you need to have other people around you? Where are you going to get those people from? You know, what does your relationship and your network look like where you can pull people and get people excited about what you're excited about? So it really starts from just writing those ideas down and keeping a journal of them and then transposing those ideas and the excitement that you have into tangible ideas that you can start writing down and then start representing in the form of some sort of a pitch deck to investors like us. Um, and so one of the things that I see, and you know, another area that I think is really important for those that are trying to do this is 
don't always work on the, the notion of what the total addressable market is today. Try to think about what the total addressable market can be for the next five to 10 years as well too. It's important to know what it is today and it's important to know how many other competitors there are, but really try to think about how this thing grows and not just think about it, but try to materially uh, put inputs into it, how it can grow with data, with any kind of backup that you can from source. That's really important for, for people like us. It's great to see what it is today. It's great to see what it can be in the future, but really try to substantiate it with more knowledge and information that you yourself have mm -hmm. access to. David, it really sounds like one of the major themes here is this idea of structure methodology uh, in what you say in terms of the way that you give advice uh, to young people who are interested in this and also uh, in the way that you evaluate investments. I think that's just so critical to doing just about anything. It's the difference between something being a hobby and something being a potential passion and a business. Right. It, it's absolutely true. You know, you, you, can, you can have hobbies, you can have passion projects, um, but if you really want to build something, acknowledge first and foremost, it's not going to be easy. Um, in, in the days where in the past, uh, when we had quantitative easing, when money was cheap, when capital right. was easy, things were different. Yes. You're now entering into a market where things are much more uh, scrutinized. Uh, yes. There's much more difficulty accessing that capital pool. And so if you want to get out there and you have an idea and then you're excited about it, substantiate it, you know, work with people like us. I'm always accessible, you know, visa Twitter or LinkedIn, wherever, you know, socials you can find me on, pitch me an idea. Let me know what that is. Um, and let's work through it. You know, that's well, part of my job is, is really facilitating, you know, the youngest people out there, the people who have, you know, maybe 45 and that have an idea too. My, my role, in addition to finding and executing investments for our early stage venture fund is to work with people like you out there that have ideas that can change our future. Well, there you have it. You heard the man at David Nage on Twitter. Uh, listen, by the way, 45 is not the upper limit either. It can go further <laughs> than that. Uh, but let me just ask you this, you know, kind of to shift back to your, your point around quantitative easing, the macroeconomic conditions uh, that we were talking about here. Uh, one of the data points that's come out here in the last uh, in the last week is this. Uh, I'm just looking right now at my screen, reading directly off it from this headline from CoinDesk. Crypto winter led to a 91% plunge in VC and other investments for January. Uh, and there's an ugly chart there that accompanies it. Oh, there it is. Beautiful. The chart's up on the screen right now. Uh, and basically, if you're if you're listening to this uh, on podcast, what you can see here is this this massive delta between 2022 and 2023. This is a year over year chart month mm -hmm. uh, on a monthly basis, uh, CFI, DeFi, infrastructure, Web3, all collapsing. Uh, probably the greatest drop in CFI, not surprising considering what we've seen. Uh, and the largest, um, you know, the, the smallest drop, I should say, probably simpler, uh, is in infrastructure spending. H how do you think about these kind of uh, flow of funds data uh, that looks at, uh, you know, these numbers over time in relation to things that are happening in, in uh, you know, for example, uh, macroeconomic and, uh, and monetary policy bases? Yep. What we started to see, we started to see this uh, right around the end of April into May of last year. Uh, and as I said, you know, 31 billion, give or take, was was allocated into early stage and venture in, 20, in 2022. 70%, uh, give or take, um, was effectively allocated in the first two quarters. What we started to see is that the events of May, uh, some of the CFI collapses of, you know, the likes of the Celsius and the BlockFi's of the world, um, that definitely started to have a material effect on uh, attitude and, and kind of the, the juxtaposition of capital and ideas. 
Uh, and so what we started to see is that um, there was a period of about six weeks or so uh, from around May to June where VCs became very uh, quiet. Um, they started to really take some time to see kind of what the effects were, what the after effects were, what the kind of contagion maybe. And so things started to resurrect uh, towards you know, July into August. It's reflected the numbers, obviously in Q3 were down, but they were not as down as much as they were in Q4. And then obviously the events of FTX happened. And what we call this is a re-rating. So after the events in May, uh, there was a re-rating in the market where valuations, and just to give everyone a sense, again, if there are founders out there too who are listening to this, valuations have changed. Um, seed rounds, for instance, uh, before the events have happened in May, were typically seed rounds would, you know, you would fetch maybe about 30 to $35 million pre-money valuations. This is obviously before the money that you raise comes into the, into the company. Um, and then what happened uh, is that seed rounds are now effectively where we are today after all of the events that have happened, seed rounds have repriced and have re-rated where we're seeing seed rounds now at a 10 to 15 million post money valuation. This is after all the money comes in. So typically if you're raising three or $4 million, your, your pre-money valuation would have been about 10 million, give or take. And so we saw a fairly significant change in the valuation schema over the last six to eight to nine months. Um, so this has also been affected by the duration of, of the attitude of investors. Deals um, and, and investment in new companies was radically different uh, a year ago. Uh, if there was a, a deal where a founder was building something exciting, gaming or DeFi, you as an investor might have had about two weeks um, to kind of come and commit uh, because some other big fund was already ready to take down the entire round. What's happened after the events of May and then obviously FTX is that duration on deals have now expanded to upwards of six, uh, six weeks and, or even more. Um, and so it's taking longer. Um, what you're seeing, we've already done this already internally here, but what you're seeing is that others are starting to take longer in their diligence process, um, you know, apply the same type of scrutiny that we have before. Um, but the duration on the investment side has definitely taken longer. So valuations have come down, duration has expanded. Um, and so what you saw in January, as you alluded to, Ash, is that about 70 deals were completed for about $540 million, give or take, which is vastly different than January of 2022, where we were still in this exuberance period where there's still a lot of energy and capital coming into it. And so what you're going to see, in my, in my opinion, uh, for 2023 and beyond until there's some sort of change, Valuations for pre-seed are going to be five million post-money valuation and below. Again, that's that post number. So if you're raising one million dollars, that would be about four million pre. Um, seed rounds are going to be pricing ten to fifty million post. Again, about two times step up from the year pre-seed. And then Series A, this is when you start getting into that growth equity side. It's going to be highly contingent on growth metrics. If you're generating revenue and you're annualizing that revenue, that it's called ARR. Uh, what we've started to see is that there's a multiple that investors are putting on that ARR. So if you're generating 1 million of ARR, uh, you could see anywhere between 10 to 15 times multiple on top of that. So you would get a valuation of about 10 to $15 million. Um, and so this is another thing that's changed dramatically is that Series A's in the past have been fairly uh, highfalutin. They've been the hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. Uh, but that is is definitely drastically changing too. So there's a lot of structural changes that are happening to the valuation duration side, um, but still capital is coming in. Um, 
one thing that I will caveat, though, and one thing that we've definitely seen from our peers and what we've heard uh, from others out there is that the amount of capital to put to the market has changed as well, too. A lot of money has been raised across the board for venture in, in this asset class over the last few years. Some funds have been very quick uh, to invest in, in these vintage periods of 2021 and 2022. Um, and now they may have 20 or 30% of their capital left uh, to invest. And they would typically start going to look to do a next fund, a fund two or fund three. The fundraising environment, because of some of the issues that we've seen with the, May, the events in May and FTX, et cetera, have definitely dampened some of the interest from some of the traditional LPs out there. There's still money out there. People are still raising capital, don't get me wrong, but it's not as exuberant uh, as it had been before. So the dollars are harder to get to. Um, and so, you know, for a fund that may have 30% left of their capital base, they're not going to be as quick uh, to invest. Uh, and they're gonna be much more cautious about putting that capital to market these days. Hey everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. David, a very thoughtful and detailed answer. This is information that's very hard to get uh, for most people who aren't involved in the venture capital space. Uh, so we very much appreciate you going through this in detail because I think it's really important for our viewers and our listeners to understand how this world works, how the capital flows uh, to these projects. Such an important uh, conversation and an important topic. David, let me ask you this. Looks like we've got some questions from our viewers. Would you be comfortable taking a couple of these? Sure. All right, before we get to our viewer questions in just one moment, uh, for those watching on the Real Vision website, thank you. If you haven't signed up there yet, check it out at realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's the best way to access Real Vision crypto content, and it's always free. Today, we've released the latest Rouse's Adventures in Crypto. He spoke with the head of research at Delphi Digital, Kevin Kelly. Again, that's realvision.com forward slash crypto. And if you're watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe and hit the notification bell. Okay, on to our viewer questions, and we've got some good ones. First one comes to us from Ralph H., one of our regular viewers on the Real Vision website. This is a great question. Are VC returns in digital assets much different from traditional VC returns? Great question, Ralph. That is a great question. Uh, what we've seen uh, in just running some uh, numbers, we one of the resources that we use is PitchBook. And so one of the, the resources that we've seen is that- By the way, explain what PitchBook is for people who don't know. Uh, what sure. PitchBook has uh, been a platform that's been around for well over 10 years now. It's a great uh, analytic and repository of private market deals, whether you're a private equity or a venture capitalist. Um, you get to see information in regards to uh, private uh, companies, uh, founders, their, their employee counts, uh, their comps. Uh, if you're trying to ever run comps on a private company, this is one of the places that you go to. Uh, so without being uh, too salesman-like, uh, it is a great resource uh, and something that we use on a regular basis. And so we looked at the the comps here for, uh, you know, the, the funds in this space right now. And the majority of them right now in the digital asset space 
are typically in for a vintage of 2022, for instance, are typically getting about 15% uh, IRR right now in the upper top quartile of, of performance. Uh, relative to other VCs out there, I would say that we are performing above. Um, it's typically something that you see better performance from right now. Um, and so I would, yeah, I would say that that's, you know, one of the things you know, we, we've definitely seen over the last few years is that the returns have been fairly uh, significant. Those returns though, you know, as I said, have started to materialize and started to normalize more. But in regards to the relationship to traditional VC, uh, the returns in, in digital asset venture have been uh, fairly, uh, have been upticked uh, be, uh, be, uh, compared to the other side. Great. Uh, let's look at some other questions here. Uh, here's another one from Ralph, actually. Also, what are the perceived exits for VC investors, acquisitions, IPOs, or something else? And do any types of exits to dominate uh, over any other? So acquisition versus IPO versus other potential exits. I would say that in the market in total, IPOs, you know, not just from digital asset venture, but from traditional venture has definitely seen a deceleration there too. You've seen, you know, some companies out there that have pushed off their IPOs uh, from the traditional venture side. And so I would not equate, we definitely don't look at IPOs as the exit strategy for many of the companies in our space. We do see many of the acquisition side. Uh, we see that there are legacy companies uh, out there, more web one and two focused that are looking for strategies and are looking for uh, access into this market. Um, we have you know, a few companies in the space that are probably uh, in that vein too. Um, and so we definitely see the acquisition as more of the potential versus the IPO in this market. Yeah, some more great questions here. I'm looking here at Wrong Again uh, on YouTube. How does David think about the public blockchain architecture overall? And this is the real meat of the question. Uh, many base layers or a few that accumulate the bulk of the value. Boy, what a great question about uh, trying to understand what the future looks like. That is a great question. Um, as, a, as a venture fund, we are agnostic to uh, the blockchains out there. So we don't have a specific uh, blockchain that we are very candid and married to, if you will. Uh, but yes, you know, the value capture and something that we have talked about as a firm for years, uh, where does that come from? Um, and so if you are, you know, minting NFTs on Polygon, you know, does Polygon see an uptick in that? Where is the value captured there? Yeah. So yes, that is definitely, you know, there are sources um, for your listeners that want to find out more about that. One of their sources I would recommend is using a site called Token Terminal. Uh, they do a great job in looking at the revenue generated by the protocols and the applications out there. Um, and so you can see that there is revenue generated. Um, and there is uh, ways of being able to see the kind of the, the flow through to the token. Uh, what we've seen over the last few years, though, you know, different L1s is that you've seen different models. You've seen the amortization type of model where you have a buyback and burn, where the company may generate X amount of dollars and uh, they buy back their tokens. Very similar to what you see in the equity side where you have a corporation that's flush with cash uh, and buys back their stock. Um, and so we've seen that model before. Don't know if that's going to be the future, but that's one of the models we've seen before. So there are different models, but again, it's very early. Um, but we have definitely, we definitely see revenue being generated by some of these L1s in these applications. And I would recommend, you know, using some of those sources like a token terminal to be able to find that. Here's another question, uh, actually from Wrong Again on YouTube as well. And it's obviously thinking along the same lines, but it's a question about really how the ecosystem develops. How does David see ownership in Web3 developing? Will users be able to benefit from the data they generate? Boy, this is a great question, really at the very core of the value proposition uh, for getting people to move into Web3 infrastructure. 
I really, you know, one of the things that we've seen, we didn't touch on this before, Ash, is one of the things I think is going to happen or what could happen is that the cookie, uh, the internet cookie is under some duress, especially in the UK. There's some efforts to eliminate the cookie uh, and eliminate some of the, the architecture and infrastructure of the internet cookie. I think the NFT could be the next cookie. Uh, and what does that mean for ownership? You own that NFT. Uh, your activity, uh, whether you go to that site or you go to other sites, you interact with different places, can be incorporated and captured in that NFT. Um, and so this is another area that we're very excited about. In addition, uh, what we've seen, and we've seen this with a few of our portfolio companies, they are experimenting with this idea of experience being captured in the NFT. So if you're a developer, if you're an engineer, for instance, if you're very you know, experienced with JavaScript or Python and you want to learn Solidity or Rust, some of the languages that are used by different blockchains, you can go to courses and uh, fulfill those course loads and have it minted as an NFT so you can represent that uh, as a verification that you completed that. So that's ownership of your experience, of your knowledge that you can now represent uh, because it's on-chain and it can be verified. And so we definitely think verifiable information and experiences, credentials is something that is one big part of Web3 uh, going forward. David, spectacular conversation here in general. Obviously, a lot of detail from someone who works in the space. Uh, give us some of your key takeaways, final thoughts that you'd like to leave our viewers with. I really think that where we are today is obviously in regards to some of the issues that we talked about before, Ash. Uh, we are in a place in time right now where many people feel that uh, it's very hard. It could be the end in many people's minds. Uh, and you alluded to it, Ash, you know, with Amazon. There was a time and place when Amazon stock went to pittance and everyone rid off Amazon. And now Amazon is, 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 is ingrained in our society as, as sliced bread. Um, although bread is actually quite expensive right now too. Um, and so I, I would say that you know, what we're seeing today is that this is a period of time where it's very hard you know, for those that don't have a long thesis in this space. Um, they may have been here for the excitement. They may have been here for the number go up kind of meme. But for those that have a rational thesis that what we were seeing today is the future of the way that we interact with brands, the way we interact with each other. Uh, this is something that is you know, going through its fits and starts as a technology. And it's something that we've seen before, but we've forgotten because we, we typically don't look to the past very often. We keep looking for the future, what's happening in the next five minutes. So for those that are still you know, looking at this, you know, what has happened over the last few months is emblematic of just part of the story, in my opinion, that there is a bright future here. Uh, that it's not going to be smooth sailing, but you know nothing is in this world, especially that's good and worth it. And so, as I always like to quote, uh, without struggle, there is no progress. And so, I think that's really where we are today. David, uh, great conversation once again. You know, my key takeaways are: I think I very much agree with you on the overall framework uh, of the development of this technology and how uh, it is going to really change the way that we interact with each other, change commerce, change finance. Uh, that's the promise here. Uh, that is what uh, people who are passionate in this space are in it for. Uh, again, you know, important to point out, I think, for our viewers to think along the time horizons that you're thinking around uh, five years. 10 years. These are much longer term. Obviously, there's going to be fluctuation in price. Uh, there's this notion, this idea, this thesis uh, that value and price are not necessarily the same. In fact, they offer, often differ rather dramatically. Uh, and so you can see these shocks hit markets uh, while simultaneously the development continues. I think for those of us who are passionate about this technology, uh, that's just something 
that you need to accept. You need to find a way uh, to deal with it. And that's one of the reasons why I encourage people to talk to financial advisors to understand uh, their own uh, asset allocation, their own framework, their own risk tolerance. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, uh, in fact, the principal reason why you can never take financial advice from anyone on the internet. Uh, but with that said, really tremendous conversation. Hope you can come back and do it again soon, David. I would love to, Ash. Always a pleasure. Uh, for those of you watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell. That way you will always be up to date with the latest crypto news and analysis. If you're not a Real Vision subscriber yet, don't forget, it's free. Head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's it for today. We'll be back Monday with Marshall Hayner, Brian Estes, Jake uh, Cherviski, among other guests. Oh, that's the rest of the week, obviously. That's not just one show. Uh, see you at 9 a.m. Pacific time, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great weekend, everybody.